0: Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, in this passage that we study today, we learn that while our Lord Jesus came to serve and to save, he did not come to play. Teach us of him today, Father, and help us to learn from him. Help us to learn what his hearers, the leaders, did not learn and take it to heart. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today in Matthew 21, we're nearing the end of uh, the section uh, of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 19 through 22. That whole section, chapters 19 through 22, uh, have the theme, the king's glory, the king's authority, pardon me, the king's authority displayed. We already saw the first of the three sections where the king rocked and shocked his disciples in unheard of thoughts about uh, divorce and children and richness and uh, salvation. Then we saw the king rock and shock Jerusalem as he came to the city and to the temple. And now in the section we begin today, chapter 21, verse 23, through chapter 22, verse 46, a large section, we're going to see the king rocking and shocking the leaders of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. He will, in turn, confront the chief priests, the elders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the lawyers and the lay leaders as well. And this is going to set up the climax of his earthly ministry, which is his betrayal, his trial, his crucifixion. We've got a lot to learn about Jesus and a lot to learn from Jesus, so let's dig in. Roman numeral one in your outline, we have a portrait of clash in words about deeds. A portrait of clash in words about deeds. And as I'll point out later, you see the words say and said an unusual amount of time in this section, and this is about words, words said and not meant. So, a portrait of clash in words about deeds. First thing we'll see is leaders asking questions they weren't interested in the answers to. So number one, the leaders ask two questions that are really one. The questions first then are introduced in verses 23 through 25a. And first the leaders ask two questions that are really one in verse 23. And after he came, my translation for you from the Greek text, and after he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him while he was teaching, saying, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So it's the setting here, the setting is in the temple. Remember, Jesus had come, cleaned it out, he'd returned, cursed the fig tree and now he's in the temple and he's teaching in the temple and in fact he's going to remain in the temple through the rest of chapter 21 chapter 22 chapter 23 he's not going to leave it till the first verse of chapter 24 So the setting is the temple. Now these leaders we're seeing, they're still smarting from their last contact with Jesus. What what happened in their last contact with Jesus? Well, he had disrupted their program. He disrupted business in the temple, the buying and selling of sheep and whatnot and doves. He disrupted that and he had characterized it as being the behavior of robbers, perverting the house of God from a house of prayer into a cave where robbers hang out. And when they tried to rebuke him for letting the children run around singing Hosanna to the son of David, he confronted them again. And he said, well, now, have you never read the eighth psalm where it says that God perfects praise out of the mouth of babes and sucklings? Yes, this was not a great day for them. Now, do you think that they took this and went home and repented? Uh, That would make a lovely story that they heard his words, went home, humbled themselves before the Lord and came back repentant. No, they did not. Well, they did come back, but they came back wanting payback and not in repentance. So they're coming back, and they have a brilliant plan. It's brilliant, brilliant, I say, foolproof, sure to humiliate Jesus, absolutely guaranteed to work. And they come and they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Well, what things are they talking about, these things? Well, things such as his the way he entered Jerusalem. He entered Jerusalem in, in messianic symbolism. He entered on the, the uh, on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9. And he entered with the crowd singing to him as the son of David, which is a messianic title. And the uh, children in the temple took up that cry, son of David. By what authority does he do that? And then he walks into the temple as if he owns it, or at least as if his father owns it, and he tells them they're doing it wrong. That running business like this in the temple is wrong. It's the wrong spirit. It's the wrong use of the temple. By what authority does he do that? He heals the lame and the blind. By what authority does he do that? And then he's sitting here now in the temple teaching in the temple as if he were an authorized rabbi and they sure hadn't authorized him they hadn't ordained him he didn't have a diploma from them on the wall of his office they knew that for a fact and so they ask him by what authority is he doing these things his teaching the way he taught do you remember the way he taught Do you remember what we read at the end of the sermon on the mount if you read chapter 7 verses 28 and 29 That it happened when he finished his teaching, the crowds were what astonished at his teaching. And why were they astonished at his teaching? For he was teaching them as one having authority. There it is. He was teaching them like a man with authority who knew what he was talking about and believed himself to have the right to say what he said so absolutely. He was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes the sort of people who now are challenging him about what the source of his authority is. Well, that's that's the setting then. And we have their asking. What's, what's good about their asking? Yes, I can actually say sincerely good things about their asking. Let me say, first of all, that it really is the right question as far as it goes. That's the right question to ask about somebody who's standing up and saying things about God who's saying things about absolute truth, who's saying things about eternity, about ultimate matters, questions of right and wrong. Well, what is the source of your authority? What, is he, what do you have to back this up? That's a, the that's a, that question. I wish more people asked that question. I, I, I wish these adoring crowds of tens of thousands who were sitting listening to self-anointed prophets and leaders and, and false teachers, I wish they'd ask. What's their authority for teaching these things? Or the leaders of, of ever so many cults and false teachings. What's their authority? Um, I, I would love to, I'd be happy to be asked that question myself. My authority is the word of God. I'd be happy to answer that. That's my conscious authority. Whenever I stand up before you, I, um, that's my question. Am I saying what the word of God says? If I do, I have, if I don't, I have no authority. If I do, then my authority rests on the authority of God's word. Well, it's a good question as far as it goes. But what's bad about it is that they didn't really want to know the answer. (laughs) It wasn't a a real question. It wasn't a sincere question. If they really wanted to know the answer to that question, what should they do? Shut up. Watch, learn, listen. What did they do? They walked up when he was teaching and they, they interrupted him. If they had simply listened, if they wanted the answer to that question, they would have gotten the answer to that question. But they didn't want the answer to that question. They didn't want to know the answer. What did they want? They just wanted to beat Jesus. They just wanted to shut him up. They wanted to put him somewhere where he was handled, where he was not an issue to them, where he wasn't an irritant, he, he wasn't a, a disrupter. They wanted to put him in his place, would that they had if they had they'd be on their knees before him but they wanted to put him in the place that they wanted him to be in and they wanted control of the crowd and they wanted control of the situation that's all they cared about shut jesus up control the crowd control the situation and towards that end they had a brilliant plan genius i say it was sure to work because if they answer if he answers their question, well, my authority comes from God. My authority was given me from heaven. Bingo. They have just a little package to tie up with a bow on it and hand it to, to, to Pilate. If this northern Galilean from Herod's jurisdiction had walked into Rome's jurisdiction in Judea and was announcing himself to be a God ordained deliverer, there you go. Bring Rome in, hand it over to the governor. Rome absolutely has a policy about such people. And so if he says that, well, that's where they go. Little flowchart thing. And if he says, well, my authority comes from men, well, then again, he's done. Nobody needs to listen to him because it didn't come from them. He's in the Jerusalem temple and the Jerusalem leaders did not give him the right to teach and to do the things that he was doing. So again, he's finished and this is what they wanted. This was the result they wanted. Foolproof. And besides, they really already knew the answer to their question. To his, yes, they knew the answer to their question, didn't they? Just drop your eyes down to verse 25 after he asks his question, where did the baptism of John come from? And they say, well, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then for what reason did you not believe him? In other words, they already knew what Jesus thought about John's baptism. And John gave testimony to Jesus. So they knew where he believed his authority came from, if they wanted the answer to that question. But of course, they didn't want the answer to the question. They wanted to control Jesus, the crowds, the situation. So they asked a question they didn't mean. So uh, they knew that uh, Jesus believed John's baptism was from heaven. Jesus accepted John's testimony about himself. And the question they asked was insincere so uh, we're going to look at this a couple of times but we've got a saying don't we to encourage people there are no stupid questions beg to differ (laughs) there are stupid questions and there are bad questions what sorts of questions are stupid questions or bad questions well questions to which you already think you know the answer and you don't accept the answer that's a bad question at least it's a bad faith question. Uh, Questions when you're just using the question to cloak rebellion. Now there's a lot of that going around, by the way. And I just warn you, for instance, that people who want to be evangelical leaders, but don't want to either be evangelical or lead, use this as a way to cloak their rebellion. Uh, You ask them what they think about Donald Trump and they'll tell you how awful he is and how stupid people are who vote for him. That's a very simple issue. You ask them, what do you think about homosexuality? Well. That's a very complicated question. That takes a lot of nuance, and that takes a lot of this and that, and by the time they end up answering, you have no idea. And that's exactly the point. <laughs> they don't want you to know because that's unpopular, and they are just like these guys. They want to control the crowds in the situation. They want to keep their they want to keep their places and conferences and on boards. They want to keep their reputation. Their concern is not being faithful to God above all. So Really simple questions are very complicated and they've got lots of questions about these questions. And you find that in people who have been confronted something, with something from the Bible that they don't want to bow the knee to, they don't want to deal with. Well, they've just got all sorts of questions. You see that, you know, any parent knows this trick, probably, don't you think? Don't, don't you experience that, parents? That you've given your child a fairly simple instruction, but they can't possibly obey you. Or later you ask them why they didn't obey, and well, it's because they had all these questions about, I mean, you say mow the lawn, but really what is the lawn? And where really does our property end? And and really this whole concept of property, where did that come from? Didn't the land belong to the Indians first or something like that? Do I have the right to mow a lawn? You know, all these questions that just amount to, I don't wanna do what you said. But it sounds better and I look better if I cloak it in questions. And that's what they do. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. They don't care who he is, but they look a whole lot better if they hide behind their questions. So yeah, there are bad faith questions and there are stupid questions. Now the theme here, the theme in this whole section is authority. The first of these three confrontations is a challenge to Jesus' authority. They challenge his authority, and then they try to stump him in the next section, and then he has some questions of them in the final section. But just notice that Matthew shows us that 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 is his theme by the literary device we've seen many times of inclusio. To the first section, look at verse 23, uh, where their question is, um, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And then Jesus asked them a question and they refused to answer. And look at what Jesus says in verse 27. Nor do I for my part say to you by what authority I am doing these things. The very wording that they use. So, this section is about Jesus' authority. This whole section is about Jesus' authority. So, they ask two questions that are really one Who do you think you are? And the Lord asks two questions that, in essence, are one. He says it's one, but you see two question marks, but it amounts to the same thing asked two different ways. And Jesus in answer, that's number two, the Lord asks two questions that are really one. The leaders did, the Lord does. And Jesus in answer said to them, I too will ask you one word, which if you say the answer to me, I too will say to you by what authority I am doing these things. The immersion of John, whence was it? From heaven or from men? Now, this um, method of answering a question with a question is, is not evasive. It's something that the rabbis often use, answering questions with questions. Jesus did it quite a bit, and he's going to answer the question, just not the way that they're asking it. He has a, he has a, they think that they're smart. He actually is smart. And so he's going to answer, but not their way, and not in a way that plays into their trap. So he says, here's, here's this one question, this one word I'm going to ask you, and if you say the answer, I'll say the answer to your question. The immersion of John. Now, what does he mean when he's talking about the immersion or the baptism of John? That's a figure of speech called a synecdoche. Uh, that's a word you probably don't use much, but you use synecdoche a lot. Like if you say, I'm going to go out and get a set of wheels, a new set of wheels. Well, are you really going to go out and get a new set of wheels? I bet you're going to get the whole car. (laughs) But the way we describe it is we call it a set of wheels. Or you say to your kid to keep his eye on his kid sister. Well, you don't mean just his eye. You mean his whole attention. But we say the eye. A synecdoche is where you use one part of something to signify the whole of something. And so when he says the baptism of John, he doesn't just mean the baptism. He means his whole ministry what he preached, what he taught, what he said, including his baptism. The whole thing, he's asking, where did that come from? And and what was the ministry of John? Turn back to Matthew chapter 3 with me. And let's remind ourselves of how Matthew describes it. Matthew chapter 3, and we see in uh, verses 11 and 12, in the preaching of John, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And then when Jesus comes up to be baptized, look at what John says in verse 14 tried to prevent him and says, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come with me? Come to me? That is his testimony that Jesus is the one he said who was coming, who baptized with the Holy Spirit, which is what Messiah does. And then comes the Spirit of God descending on Jesus and remaining on him. And that was, that was very significant. To learn more about John's uh, ministry, we just need to first turn to the first chapter of the Gospel of John, Gospel of John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, but turn to to Gospel of John chapter 1, and read what he says about the ministry of John the Baptist that Jesus refers to. There was a man, verse 6, having been sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, the light who is Jesus, he just said, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And then look at verse 19, this is the witness of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem, maybe these very people who were talking to Jesus, to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And so they press him and they press him. And he finally says, well, here's what I am. Verse 23, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. And then he says in verse 26, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. This is the one who comes after me, of whom I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. And he sees Jesus. Verse 29, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then to his disciples, he says in verse 33, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, "The one upon whom you see the Spirit descending and abiding on him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit." And I myself have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now friends, that's the ministry of John the Baptist. And that's what Jesus is a- that's what Jesus is asking about when he says, "The immersion of John was it from heaven?" Or from men same sort of question they ask simple question John's already come already done his ministry already finished it surely you've had time to examine it what is your position did it come from heaven or from men so they've asked their questions Jesus asked his questions now letter B we see the answers first number one the leaders refuse him <laughs> the leaders refuse him Verse 25b, and they began discussing amongst themselves. They began discussing among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, well, he'll say to us, then for what reason did you not believe him? But if we say from men, uh, it's too terrible, they don't even finish that thought. We're afraid of the crowd, for they all regard John as a prophet. So in answer to Jesus, they said, "We don't know. Well, this is the discussion of these great and good men. These are the leaders. These are the finest. These are the ones who've taken on themselves the leadership in the name of God, of the people of God. This is them discussing and deliberating. And what is this discussion all about? Is it all about the truth of God and about being faithful to God and serving God faithfully? Do they all get together and humble themselves and say, well, you know, we wanna make sure we're not on the wrong side of this. As if this is a messenger of God, we wanna make sure that we follow him. I mean, after all, Deuteronomy 18 says, God will raise up a prophet like himself. And, and if we don't listen to what that prophet says, God himself will require it of us. Do they have that kind of a discussion? Not a bit of it. Not at all. It's all about control. It's all about tactics. It's all about strategy. Charles Spurgeon well said, men pleasers are obliged to be politicians and see which way the land lies. That's right. Men pleasers are obliged to be politicians and see which way the land lies. And they know which way the land lies lay. The people had accepted John as as a prophet, and so they were afraid of them because they wanted to maintain their control of them. A commentator from the 18th century, Johann Bengel, says, that is an evil mind which, instead of looking at the truth in a divine matter, assumes that which suits its purpose." And that's exactly what they do. So in this discussion, though, they do reveal that they know that the issue is refusal to believe. They know it because they, said it, they say in so many words. If they admit that John's ministry was from heaven, Jesus will ask them, why didn't you believe him? Well, they know that's the issue. They know about John's ministry. Why didn't they believe what John said? If they had, by the way, believed what John said, they wouldn't be asking Jesus this question. They would be bowing the knee to Jesus as who God sent him as. So they know the issue is the refusal to believe. This crowd who they despise, they, they I mean, they serve the crowd, but they despise the crowd. In, in Go- John's Gospel, they refer to them as this people who don't know the law. You know, they're, ju- they're just the rabble. They're the am haaretz, just the people of the land. They're nobodies to these leaders they, who rest on their shoulders. They're nobodies to them, but they all saw what they refused to see. They saw who John actually was. So now think this through, how many miracles did John the Baptist do? None, he did no miracles, none whatsoever. How many miracles did Jesus do? Well, <laughs> A great many. So if they admitted that John the Baptist had a ministry from God, though he did no miracles, and John testified to Jesus, and Jesus did many miracles, where does that leave their refusal to believe in Jesus? Exposed for the folly that it really is, for the stubborn, proud sin that it really is. So the leaders refuse him. They say, they say we don't know, liars. You do know. You just don't want to accept it. You don't want to believe it. So secondly, we see the Lord, the Lord reflects them. You could cross out the apostrophe S. Yes. The Lord reflects them. The Lord reflects them. In other words, they won't answer. Well, so then he won't answer. <laughs> they won't answer his simple question. Then he doesn't know them an answer to their question either. And he himself said to them, Nor do I, for my part, say to you by what authority I am doing these things. Three words Jesus doesn't play. Jesus doesn't play. It's not a game to him. To them it is. To to them it's a game of power. Not to him. It's his mission from God. But he, he had just answered a question from the disciples before this section. But now he doesn't answer this question. He'll answer questions later straight up. But this one he does not answer. Why doesn't he answer it? Again, Spurgeon helps us see. Spurgeon says they could not be won by gentleness. If he just gently answered their question that wouldn't have served them in any way wouldn't have served the people in any way it wouldn't have served jesus ministry in any way his mission so he says they could not be won by gentleness they must be shaken off exposed and dethroned from the seat of power before the eyes of those who had been misled by them and so jesus does and then as i say what he goes on to say actually answers their question but this teaches us, like I say, I'm going to touch on this a couple of times, but it teaches us, Jesus doesn't believe there's no such thing as a bad question. This is a bad faith question. And so, you know, those two Proverbs that seem puzzling when you first read them, Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5, you know, the ones I'm talking about, verse 4 says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you yourself also be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And those say, in some cases, you don't answer the question of a fool the way the fool asks it. Because then you come down to his level and play his game. And Jesus won't do that. But instead, you answer in a way that undoes him. That shows how foolish his folly is and that's what Jesus does. Now sometimes questions are absolutely sincere and I think that we should always start off with someone we're in conversation with, I don't mean an internet troll necessarily, but someone a real person we can see and know not to be a bot, you know, and uh, uh, we always start with the assumption that questions are, are genuine questions and we give them straightforward answers to these questions. But This teaches us that sometimes questions are are not real questions. Sometimes they're rabbit trails. Sometimes they're dodges. Sometimes they are simply worse than time wasters and, and meant simply to mask and cover up sheer rebellion. Proud, stubborn refusal to bow the knee to God. So in such cases, it's better to think of a way to get to the heart of the questioner. After, after, as I said, you've tried answering questions, and there's just every question you answer, there's five more questions, and they get sillier and sillier and less practical about, you know, well, you know, could God have made a, a hamburger on Venus so delicious he couldn't resist eating it? And you're starting to suspect they're not serious about this conversation. <laughs> so you start asking questions back like, well, what do you think? Why do you think that? How did you arrive at that conclusion? <coughs> in fact, how do you decide what is true in any situation? How would you decide truth in that situation? What have you done to try to find the answer? Questions like that, that expose the heart of the person. I mean, so many people, they, they dismiss truths of the Bible, and, and they don't even have a method of, of telling what the truth is. So talk about that instead. Expose that instead. And another one I've done sometimes after lengthy discussion that goes nowhere, you say, well, I'll tell you what, if I answer that question, will you bow your knee and trust Christ as Lord? If I can give you an answer to that question, is that the one that's keeping you away? And that can really expose it. Well, this isn't about that at all. It doesn't matter how many questions you answer. They have no intention of doing that. And that's the real case of the matter. And that's what Jesus comes right to here in his Jesus way. So we should learn from Jesus in Jesus' way. Well, then, we've seen the portrait, Matthew's portrait of a clash in words about deeds. And by the way, you just see in this section Matthew's usual beauty in the way he writes, the way that the Holy Spirit moved him to write. We have first a portrait of clash in words about deeds, and now we have a parable about clash of words and deeds, Roman numeral two, a parable about clash of words and deeds. Words and deeds clash in this parable. Verses 28 through 32. And first we have the tale, T-A-L-E, the tale, the parable itself. The frame is opened by a rhetorical question and no answer. Jesus asks the question, but there's no answer. It's a rhetorical question. Verse 28a, rhetorical question, but no answer. Jesus says, now what does it seem like to you? And then he's going to respond with actually three parables. We just can't look at all three of them in this one sermon. But he actually tells three parables. Again, there's Matthew and is working with Jesus' teaching. Three parables respond to them. We'll look at the first today. And they all deal with authority and their response. And these parables are going to reveal the character and the judgment of those who reject Jesus Christ. But Jesus engages them in this way. They won't answer his question about John the Baptist. Maybe they'll answer him about a story. That's it. He'll tell them a little story. So this is not real world like the John the Baptist question. It should be easier to answer a question about a story, right, actually, because it, it, it never actually happened. So, so maybe they'll answer his question about a story if he tells them a little story. So he tells them a story and engages them. What do you think he asked? What, what's your thoughts about this? And not being real world, What possible pretext would they have for not answering his question about this story? How could they say? We don't know. It's not a complicated story. You'll see. It's a pretty simple story. They have to answer the question. (laughs) And they thought they'd outsmart him. I mean, that just always cracks me up. Uh, What did these meetings look like? Oh, I know what we can do. (laughs) No, somebody should have been there to say, dude, no, no, this never works. But here they are. And not for the last time. So here is this story. We have a father's words with sons, verses 28b through 31. And you know, you could go back, maybe not now, but just, uh, my translation I know is awkward because I wanted you to see how many times the word say occurs in this section. Say and said, you could underline how many times say and said occur in this section. And it's a great many times because this is about saying, this is about words. This is about when words and deeds clash and don't match. Their words don't really reveal who they are directly. They are meant to mask who they are. And here's a story about words and deeds that don't match. So... um, the first son we meet first in verses 28b and 29 a man had two children and he came up to the first and said child go today work in the vineyard and he in answer said i don't wish to but afterwards he regretted it and went off to work so the first son says no but does yes and so it goes in your out in your blanks the first son says no but does yes and actually the procedure is the same in both of these sons just the end is different first the father goes and commands then the son responds and then we have what the son ultimately does the son responds in words but then we see his actions so first the father goes and commands child go today work in the vineyard he has every right to do that this is his child honor your father and your mother and so he's at home, and the father wants him to do some work, and that's very simple. There's, there's no problem there. He's well within his rights. He's asking to do it today. He's not asking to work, you know, 24-7, 365. Perfectly reasonable, perfectly within his rights, perfectly the right thing to ask. This vineyard this, the, the, is their livelihood, the family's livelihood. So the son should do it to respect his father. He should do it for the sake of the family. I mean, it's absolutely crystal clear But the son just doesn't want to. Now now the trouble in our society, we read that and it probably doesn't do much to us. But that's a shocking turn of events in Jesus' society. You just don't do that. You just don't say to your father, you know what? I just don't want to. (laughs) <laughs> oh really okay uh let me show you something and then there would be dire consequences i mean you know in the old testament a child who habitually refused to obey and and misbehave could face the death penalty for that oh yeah they're very very serious about obeying and honoring your mother and your father so no a son doesn't just say to his father you know i just not feeling it i just not feeling it today sorry best of luck maybe hire somebody but I'm not your guy. So he says, "Uh, no, I I really, I'm not willing to do this. I, I don't wish to do it. Rude, shocking, unheard of. But then look what happens. But afterwards, he regretted it and went off to work. On reconsideration, he regrets what he said. And he goes off and he works. So he says no, but he does yes. He refuses the command, then he obeys the command. Uh, What a wonderful thing. I mean, I just tell you how how seldom I see this, how heartbreaking it is to me again and again and again. Somebody says something foolish, does something foolish, refuses to to comply with something the Bible says. Very clear, very simple. And then when he has some time to think it over in, in the quiet, you know, away from confrontation, just him and God, the Word of God, he thinks it over, he thinks it through, and then doubles down just as bad as before or worse. That seems to be the rule. This is rare. This is unique. This is wonderful. He thinks about it and decides he was dead wrong. And he goes out and he works. So the first son says no, does yes. And then the second son says yes, but does no. And he came to the other one and said likewise. But he in answer said, I will, Lord. Now, very literally, the Greek just says, Ego kurieh. Me, Lord, I'm your guy. I'll do it, absolutely. Very emphatic. And I translate it, Lord, it could be sir. But I translate it, Lord, uh, let me tell you why in just a second. Keep you in terrible suspense until then. But he says, I'm your guy, Lord, and yet he does not go off to work. So the first son's initial response is dead wrong. But then he does what he should. The second son's verbal response is absolutely right. That is exactly how his son should respond. But then he doesn't do it. Words and deeds clashing, you see. He reneges. He doesn't go off to work. Now, I think the way Jesus has him say, "Uh, yes, Lord, (laughs) I'm your guy, Lord. I will do what you say, Lord, because it harkens back to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about Lord. What did he say in the Sermon on the Mount? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but who will? The one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Now, here we are again. Uh, Luke 6:46. Why do you call me Lord, but don't do the things I command? So here it is again. He says, oh, yes, Lord, I'll do it. Exact right thing to say, but then doesn't do it. So that's the Father's words, and now we have the frame closed in verse 31a. Jesus has asked a rhetorical question with no answer, but now he asks a real question and gets an answer. Number three, a real question and an answer. So Jesus had asked them, What do you think? And now he says, Who of the two did the will of his Father? They said, The first. Now, first, notice Jesus' question. What Jesus doesn't ask, what doesn't he ask? He doesn't say, which one of them said the right thing? Then that'd be a different answer, wouldn't it? The second one said the right thing. But that's not his question. His question was, who of the two did the will of his Father? Not who said the right thing, and not who said he would do the will of his Father, but who did the will of his father? And that's always Jesus' concern. Like I said, Matthew seven twenty-one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Matthew seven twenty-one. Matthew twelve fifty, where he's teaching and his his relatives stand outside, wanting to go out and talk to them. But Jesus says in Matthew twelve fifty, whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. So his greatest concern is not saying the right thing, but a heart faith that results in obedience. And what does that have to do with the Jewish leaders? Well, what did they say about themselves? They sat in Moses' seat. They were students of the law of Moses. They believed the law of Moses. They loved the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They they were God's people. They were God's leaders, God's priests, God's elders, God's scribes, God's teachers. They claimed in words to love God and to revere him and to fear him. And anything God said, they would do. But it was just words. And in their words, they'd worked out a system by which they were able to feel holy and pious, but not actually fear God not actually believe God, not actually submit to God. And what was the proof of that? Jesus says it in the Gospel of John. If you believed Moses, what? You'd believe me. If you learned from God, what? You'd come to me, Jesus says. But all these God-fearing believers, when Jesus comes, they want nothing to do with them. It's just words. Fine words, lovely words, godly words, but just words. They say, yep, I'm in, but they don't go. But there's this other group. So let's hear about them. We, we see the tail. Now we see the takedown <laughs> in verses 31b and 32, the takedown, T-A-K-E-D-O-W-N, the takedown. Here comes, here, comes, here comes when Jesus lays a trap. <laughs> this is what happens. First, we see the shameful truth in verses 31b and 32. Uh, we'll see what and why here. What is their situation? What is their situation? Verse 31b, Jesus says to them, Amen, I say to you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes precede you into the kingdom of God. Notice all the you's in these verses. One, two, three, four, five, six. I say to you, they precede you. And then verse 32, John came to you, and yet you didn't believe him. But you, those saying, you did not even regret afterwards. You, 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 you. Nailed, nailed, nailed. So what's their situation? Tax collectors and prostitutes precede you into the kingdom of God shameful, tax collectors and prostitutes, traitors and trollops will go in before you do. Those who've sold out their nation to the Romans to fleece the Jews financially, they'll go into the kingdom of God before you. And prostitutes who are, remind me, male or female, female in this male-dominated society, telling these guys that these turncoats and these trollops, these women, they will go into the kingdom of God before you do. Now, you talk about somebody who shot, who taught without fear the truth of God. That would be Jesus from head to toe. But it's remarkable here that if you look closely enough, you see the door is still open a crack. What does he say? He says, they will precede you into the kingdom of God. Now, now that could mean that they'll go in before you and instead of you, but it also could hold out the possibility unless, unless you also repent and believe, except so far they haven't and they are running out of time. The next parables will make that point a little more forcefully. They are running out of time. So, uh, if they don't repent, well, then they will not go in, though the tax collectors and the prostitutes will. And why are they in this situation? Verse 32 says, John came to you in the way of righteousness, and yet you, you righteous, righteous people, you did not believe him. Now notice that word three times, you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. But you, though seeing, you did not even regret afterwards so as to believe him. Did not regret afterwards and believe like who? Like the, the second son in the parable who said, no, I'm not willing, but he regretted afterwards and went out. Well, You have refused the Son of God, but you haven't even repented. You refused John's preaching and his testimony to me, and you haven't even regretted afterwards and gone out and done. You are, in other words, you're like the other son who shamefully says to his father, I just, he says, uh, uh, excuse me, to the other son who says to the father, yes, I'll do what you want, and then is a no-show. You are that guy. You're not the other guy. Don't think you are. They had time to think it over they had time and time and time, teaching and miracle over and over in the day, in the night, inside, indoors, outdoors, all over the place. And it just, no, uh-uh. And their time's about to run out. They had, they had elements of faith, but not faith. They, they knew the facts. They knew them to be true. I mean, they even said, we can't deny that these miracles are being done, but they just won't trust. They just won't repent and trust themselves submissively to the Lord Jesus and his words. And they don't have saving faith. They have everything they need to have it externally, but they don't have saving faith. Now, this is a sobering lesson to us, I think. In fact, it's more than one. Uh, here's one. <laughs> I think one that, that you don't, It doesn't take an advanced degree. Only fools match, match wits with Jesus. Only fools match wits with Jesus. And and that's you, and that's me. I did it, first part of my life, I matched wits with Jesus. I lost, thank God. Thank God, by God's grace, I lost and knew it and came to repentance. But only fools match wits with Jesus. They come with these questions by which they intend to do the same thing. They want to humiliate him, they want to... Uh, marginalize him. They want to put him aside where he's not a threat. And they end up lower than the Trollops and the traitors themselves. They end up marginalized eternally. And so it will be with anyone who goes up against Jesus. Anyone who in this age thinks himself wiser and smarter and better than Jesus, like like the philosopher Bertrand Russell, who believed that he was a more ethical and a more, and I've heard many since say as well, they're, they, they're more moral and they're wiser than Jesus. Well, we have a preview for how that's going to go when they are, run out of time. So matching wits with Jesus is a fool's game. Secondly, don't play fool's games. That's another thing we can learn. Don't play fool's games. Yes, Christian friend, answer honest questions give the benefit of the doubt and if it sounds like a serious question if it takes studying or talking with me or research or whatever answer honest questions and always start out assuming that they are honest questions but don't chase down rabbit trails forever and I've seen Christians do this and this is just the unbelievers game they're not serious about their questions but they'll gladly take up the entire day and night of a Christian who will answer every question And they have a website where they can go and get questions. I just copy and paste, copy and paste. And some Christians will keep going, keep going. Don't do that. Do what Jesus does. Find a way to expose the heart of the person asking, to bring them down. So how do we even tell what's true? How do we even know? But what are our methods even of telling what truth is? I I tell you that 99.9% of them have never even asked that question. They want you to prove God, but they can't tell you what would constitute proof, and what proof even is, what proof even proves, and how they can prove that, Uh the, I mean, the, the fundamental thing. So it, it's time to come down to that, that exposes the heart of the person. But here's another important thing, very important thing this teaches us, and, and particularly us in our corner of the doctrinal world of Christianity. What is it? Profession isn't everything. Saying the right thing, isn't everything? That's what profession mean. Maybe you've heard Christians talk about professors, and you think of a, you know, a black robe and a hat and a blackboard. That's not what we mean when we say professors. We mean people who profess faith, who, who claim to be Christians, who say that they have faith. But what we learn here that saying the right thing isn't everything. Now there are whole doctrinal systems that say that saying everything is that saying the right thing is everything. That if you say I believe Jesus is the Son of God and God raised Him from the dead. Well, you're a Christian, doesn't matter where you go in your life. You ever go to church again, ever open a Bible again, walk one step in the way of Jesus, doesn't matter. You said, you confessed Him. You said the right thing, you're in. But is that what Jesus seems to think? Not in any way. His, his whole point in this parable is words and deeds that clash. Saying the right thing isn't the same as doing the right thing. So, yeah, uh, faith is Everything. Faith is everything, remember? Faith, faith, faith. They didn't believe, they did believe. That's the issue. But faith produces, well, does it produce the right words? It does. But what else does faith produce? Works. Faith produces works. Now, we're not saved by faith and works at all, ever. We're saved by faith alone, through faith alone. But real faith produces works. It, it bears fruit, as we've seen so faith comes from repentance, and repentance produces what did John the Baptist say, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. Repentance brings fruits. So yeah, it's important to confess Jesus is Lord if that's a confession of genuine faith. And if it's the confession of genuine faith, then that will show in a life of obedience. And there I refer you to the last two sermons we preached that, that pokes that whole point. The whole point of, well, we we make a great profession, but what are we doing with our lives? Where where are our lives going? What are we doing about this faith that we uh, profess? So faith comes from repentance, and repentance produces works. So in close, I simply ask, have you bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ yet? You will ultimately. Every person in this room will ultimately do it. The only question is, do we bow our knee to the Lord Jesus in this life in genuine repentance unto eternal life, or do we bow the knee when it's too late to receive our eternal judgment? Do repent and believe in the Lord Jesus in this time God has given you, and the only time God gives you is now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we thank you for the living word, the Lord Jesus, who's just like the truth of God in a human form. I mean, he is exactly that. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And in his life, we see truth and light, and in his words, we find truth and light. Thank you for this very revealing encounter that he had, men who thought themselves so much smarter than he and learned otherwise, whether they took it to heart or not, And Father, we pray that we will learn from their discomfiture, that we will learn from their error, that we will never match wits with the Lord Jesus, that we who profess faith in the Lord Jesus will indeed always bow the knee to him, always save time and trouble and discipline and trips to the woodshed by realizing that the only place for a Christian is on our knees before Jesus, before his authority, learning what he says and walking in that path in genuine faith when we see we have stepped off that path, repenting and getting back to the path. And we pray, Father, uh, earnestly for those who've walked in not knowing Jesus, whether they, they thought they did and now see clearly they do not, or whether they knew they didn't. We pray the Spirit of God will just overwhelm them with the greatness and glory of Jesus, with their great need of Jesus, and that they will come running to Jesus to find life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.